We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and we're going through it at rapid speed. And uh, we are already on our third, our third week of a Hebrew series. And we are so blessed to be able to look at this, this writing that was given to us by a, uh, an anonymous source. We don't know who wrote it. As I mentioned before, just in jest, um, I, really, I really hope it was Luke because that would just make, make it awesome. Because in my brain, you get Luke and, and Paul sitting together and, uh, in, in Rome, and they're just, they're just working through theology. And they're just going. And this becomes a, an output. You know, um, there are some holes in that theory, but whatever. Nobody knows, so we can just make stuff up here. No, there are some, <laughs> there are some arguments for it. Um, but Hebrews itself is a very intelligent and layered book. It has one main argument in it, which is Jesus is superior to everything that's come before. Jesus is, in fact, superior. And so he just keeps on going through the exact same thing. And if you've read Hebrews in one sit, uh, in one sit down, it kind of reads like point one, point two, point three, and he's got about six points that he goes through that proves his one point that Jesus is superior. So today, as we're going through, uh, we have already looked at Jesus superior. Um, in uh, he's more superior than uh, than Moses. He is more superior than um, than the angels, and today he is more superior to high priests. I want to invite you that uh, if you want to text in questions on today's message at the bottom of all of that scripture we've got to get through today, um, there's a text box and you can ask anything. And at the end of service, I will be able to uh, field your questions. Now, as you'll notice, there are a ton of passages. The argument that we're going through today covers four chapters. Usually, I like to actually read the entire piece that we're, that we're working on. However, I just can't do that today. So I'm going to invite you to read it after service or even if you're able to read and listen at the same time, that would be great. Um, but we're not going to be able to get through all of it today. Um, so the, the, the passage we're actually looking at, our entire text, is Hebrews 4. Um, Hebrews 4 all the way through until the end of Hebrews 7. And so there's a huge piece there that, that we're going to read. But before we get into scripture, I just want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine for a moment that the absolute, total presence, unveiled presence of God were to become fully revealed in this room right now. the creator of the universe, the all-powerful one who speaks and things change, unveils himself, becomes completely here in all of his glory that the book of Revelation describes as glory like a sun that will illuminate the entire earth, that God himself comes and he sits here and then he says, your name. And he says,
And that's where it stops. You just stop right there. What's he saying next? What's happening in that moment when God is right there? What's happening? Is the next words coming out of God's mouth frightening? Are the next words coming out of God's mouth comforting? What's happening next in that moment? And, and in that moment when we come to God, I, I did this, I did this with, a, with a small group and, and very mature Christians in that room, and they were like, that was intimidating. Here is God coming to us. That is intimidating. That is something that, that makes me go like, whew, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. You know, there's something inside of us as human that goes like, my God and my King, and, and there's something that makes us want to just drop on the ground, and I would argue that that something is that God is that much greater than us. And, and every single time, every single time God's presence is revealed in the Bible, the response is, okay. And it's, it's fear or, or extreme discomfort I've heard people try to soften the idea of fear of God to an idea of, of oh, it's, it's just respect. It's respect of God. Now, you know, when I think of God in all of his power and all of his glory, I go, oh, okay, I'm a little intimidated. Okay, forget that. I'm a lot intimidated. Okay, I am afraid right now. There is something about this powerful God that I, I still stand. I'm not touching that. This is where we're getting to today. See, we, we, feel, we feel scared and uncomfortable at times. Part of it is because we feel a sense of guilt. I know as well as you know that not any of, of us in this room have achieved to the moral code that's written in our own hearts all of the time. I know that, 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 that that's not true. And so I know that when I come in front of God, that's one of the things going on. One of the things going on is my sense of, own, of my own personal inadequacy and guilt. But there's something else going on as well where I've got a sense of, of lack of power in the face of God. I am not equal to God. God has the power to either uphold me or squish me. He has the power to, to uproot me or plant me. He has the power. The Bible says that he has the power to, to rend or to tear us and the power to heal us. So there's something unequal in this relationship that we have with God that makes me go like, <gasps> okay, okay. So we needed to, to understand that because oftentimes in an evangelical context, the, the approach to God is so easy. But to understand the passages we're looking at today, we actually have to understand it from this perspective, that we're dealing with the Im immortal God, the powerful creator God, who has all the power in this relationship. And so, and so we, we push back. And, and we, we, we want to be with God. We want to experience God. But we also want our space. In youth ministry, I, I, uh, I had a lot of fun. I love youth ministry. That's why we're doing it again. Um, in youth ministry, we took a youth group through times of, of just getting into the presence of God. 
and we would be there and youth would just be like on their knees crying in front of God saying, God, we just want to serve you and give our lives to you. And, and, and it was so joyful and so intense and amazing. And, and I started talking to my youth after doing this for like, I think it was eight months of just straight every single Sunday night. This is what we're doing. We're just getting in the presence of God, getting in the presence of God, getting in the presence of God. And finally, one of my youth, God bless him for his honesty. He goes, Rob, we got to chill for a bit. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? Like, this is awesome. We're just getting in the presence of God. He's like, yeah, it's too intense, man. I can't come every, su- every Sunday night and, and, and just be here because it's, man, it's intense. And I was like, interesting. Interesting. So and we need to do a little bit of history lesson because this is going to make the entire text make sense, okay? And we haven't even read the text, so I apologize. I'm right now failing preaching 101 because I'm supposed to just get to the text. So you just got to bear with me here. The Hebrews are a people. They, they've been a people for a couple thousand years, um, most people would say. Uh, yeah, by this point, it's a couple thousand years that they've been a people, an organized people. And they come from Abraham and Moses. Now, what we need to know about Abraham and Moses, who become the, the founders of the faith, is they grew up in what's called the ancient Near East. And the ancient Near East had its religious constructs. And we know this because we know that there are the gods of the, of the nations around, oftentimes referred to as Baal. Um, and, and so those are the gods that are around. Now, there was a specific god who was around who was called Moloch. Moloch was an interesting god because he was kind of an angry god, um, and he was, a, he was a Canaanite god, and, and he was very dangerous. Now, there's a couple of things you need to know about him. Moloch was a calf, okay? He was, he was, a, he was a bull-type figure, the other thing you need to know about Moloch is Moloch would demand, according to the ancient Near Eastern lore, Moloch would demand child sacrifice to appease his anger and to give favor, okay? Those are two very important points about the religion surrounding Abraham and years later, Moses, because it's in this context that people have their, in, their, their childhood framework for understanding God. We all know that we get a childhood idea of God, and it's really hard to work with, and, and you get an idea of God, and that is what it is. And so this is what the children of the ancient Near East would come up knowing, this God who was a calf who would accept children sacrifice. We don't know a ton else about Molech, but we do know that that was a Canaanite god and, and pretty pervasive at the time. Here's something that's interesting. Abraham has a promise from God in Genesis. Genesis 12, you see this massive promise point. And now you take Abraham and the promise is finally fulfilled and he has a son named Isaac. God then tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's our next point on, on, on the map. Why does God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son? He's growing up, Abraham has grown up in a context and a culture where you sacrifice your child to appease God and gain his benefit. This is what you do. This is the normal. So, okay, so Abraham takes 
his son, or sorry, yeah, Abraham takes his son and goes up on a mountain to sacrifice him. And the story happens that God himself rewrites the narrative of God, and he provides a substitution atonement. He provides an animal that can be sacrificed in place of a child, and outlaws in that moment says, I am a God that does not accept child sacrifice. I accept a substitution. You can approach me with a substitution. Interesting. So at this point, God is now rewriting a cultural history and going like, mm, this way, we are changing the narrative. It is this. I, I do not want to see children sacrificed to a deity. Wrong, not happening, not what we want. And he's correcting, he's saying, stop this. This is not what's happening. So now we then move on. And we say, Moses, we see Moses, and Moses um, goes up to Mount Sinai. While he's up in Mount Sinai, this is Exodus chapter 20. While he's up in, on Mount Sinai, he's gone for too long. And Aaron, the right-hand man, Grown up in, inside, seeing all the great things that God has done, Aaron, the right-hand man, goes, all right. And the people start rebelling, and they're just like, give us our God, give us our God. And so Aaron gathers all the jewelry, throws it in the fire, and what comes out? A golden calf. A golden calf. And so now we have another, a second representation of Moloch. And God is saying, no, that's not me. That's not me. This is not how it works. You do, not sac- you do not sacrifice and you do not worship a God made by hands. You worship me. I am divine creator. And look at what happens in Exodus chapter 20. This is where we're going to actually first see scripture, which is funny because I'm preaching on Hebrews. However, Exodus 20, 19 What's happened is God has, has set up this place. He's given the ten, the ten Commandments. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. I just started at the top of my page, okay? Um, and, and this is what happens. And verse 18 says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. All of these things are signs that God himself is present. God is present. And the people's response is, you know, that is intense and I am afraid. I am afraid. As you should be. (laughs) Honestly, as you should be. You should be afraid of the very presence of God. That is a huge thing. And so, so they are afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and... And they said to Moses, you speak for us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Wow. (laughs) Let me pray. God, I know that I've been talking for too long in this introduction, but God, I pray that you would reveal to us 
what you have done. Who you are and how you are revealing yourself through cultures and through time and space that matters here and now. God, I pray that we will be able to understand your word in, in a way that we're able to look at Hebrews and say, Jesus, you are superior to everything that's gone before. And God, I pray that, that you would continue to, to work through the rest of these words and through questions that may come at the end. In Jesus' name, amen. So this becomes the moment where God needs a mediator to come between the people of God and God himself. Where, where God is too much. There's too much there. there. The glory of God is too scary. The dark trembling cloud, like the dark cloud causing the trembling and the fear going like, oh God, I can't even approach. We might die. You hold that much power, God, that we actually might die. And so, and so what gets created in the next couple moments is Aaron becomes the first priest and high priest of the people of Israel. Aaron, his role, the priests are very significant. They offer substitutionary atonement for the sin of people so that the people can approach God. They prepare the people. This is another thing they do. They prepare the people for the presence of God. They say, consecrate yourself. Set your life in order so that when God comes to you, you're ready. You're ready. This is a role of a high priest to say, hmm, okay, so, so this great and powerful God, he is going to reveal himself. You are going to see him. And you've got to be ready for this. And so the role of the priest was to, was to prepare the people. And so, so that's their role. And then they also, they, also, they uh, perform the Day of Atonement which is the moment where they come and they offer the sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement for the sin of the people. Why? So that the people can live in the presence of God, which is Israel. So the people can live there. That, that city is a holy place of God. And so the people have to be able to live there. And once a year, here's that substitutionary atonement offered to God for the sins of the people according to the law revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. So this is what a priest does. So now I'm going to flip to Hebrews. And as I said, our text today is really expansive. It's Hebrews 4.14, sorry, 4.14 to 8.1. And what we have is we have a little bit of a broken argument because he gets distracted in, or he actually starts to preach in um, in five one, remember I told you this wasn't a letter. This is actually meant to be spoken, and so he preaches to make sure he keeps people's attention from five one through until seven one. So we're actually not going to be touching that piece because it, there's a pastoral expert exhortation that doesn't actually apply to this passage. What we're talking about, but it's Jesus' high priest. So. Um, the first piece that I want to, to read is going to show us a couple of things. One is we just established what the high priest does. We just established why it's there. It's substitutionary atonement, consecration, and, uh, and, and this, you know, being prepared to be in the presence of God. We've established that that's what the high priest does. And the high priest has been very important throughout the history of, of Israel. And so now we actually need to look at Jesus. The problem is Jesus doesn't qualify to be a high priest. 
He doesn't actually qualify. According to the law, Jesus doesn't qualify. The law says that the high priest comes from the tribe of Levi, and we know that, that the high priest, that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Jesus does qualify to be a king, does not qualify to be a high priest. And so the author here needs to, needs to set this up for us to allow us to see what's going on. 5.1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins, and he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, the high priest is obligated to sacrifice, to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for the people. No one takes this honor for themselves, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So too, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you, referring to Jesus now, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Wow. Okay. So Jesus is qualified to be a king, but not a priest. However, the author is taking this turn and saying, no, a priest is appointed by God. And again, he goes back to the Old Testament and he says, you need to see it. It's right here. You are appointed to be a priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. So what he's doing is, is really important for us to understand because it's here that we're actually able to build all of our theology. I'm actually teaching us a, a, a deeper level of theology than what we normally learn because here is where we're able to build our theology about Jesus' power to forgive sins, Jesus' power to, to allow us to enter into the presence of God. We build everything on it, yet many of us, we haven't studied it or don't understand it yet. So Jesus was, was appointed in the order of Melchizedek. So the, the writer of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is from a different line of priests. Here's Aaron's priest line, and here's a different line. And so we're going to get introduced to Melchizedek in chapter 7, verse 3, 1 to 3. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation, the king of righteousness. He is then also the king of Salem, which is peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, neither having beginning of days or end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So what the author is doing here is the author is saying there is a line that was established before Abraham. There is a line of priests that was established before Abraham that allows us to say Jesus is a priest in the line of someone else. This gives a legal bearing, a legal grounding for the argument for Jesus is our high priest who is superior to the Levite high priests. And so this is really important for us to understand because this is where, this is where we're starting to see Christians go, Jesus is way superior to what we've had before, to what we grew up with. Jesus is way superior to the Jewish tradition and laws. Jesus is something very, very different. And so they're, they're, they're looking at this and saying, God, I see what you've done here. I see how you have put it inside the scripture that, that you are going to do something. And so this is what's happening. This is where the switch is happening. 
The fact that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, it's meant to show the validity of Melchizedek's priesthood. Because every good Jewish person knows that you give tithes to the Levite priest. Those are the gifts that are offered for, for your approach to God. And so he's saying, Abraham, who started this whole thing, gave tithes to Melchizedek. There is a greater priesthood going on here. And so the Levitical priesthood didn't bring perfection. Let's look at, at Hebrews 7, 11. And I apologize for being so sporadic in this. Um, it's just, it's such a long text, but he's making only one argument here. Now, if perfection has been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there to be another priest to arise in the order of Melchizedek rather than one named from the order of Aaron? So he's saying right here that because we have another priest rising up, we can see that the, that the systems of Torah, the systems of the Levitical priesthood didn't work. And so we're looking to now Jesus who is superior. So Jesus is an order um, in the priest, uh, is, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek because of his resurrection. And so, and we see this in verse 15. It becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of the legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but in the power of an indestructible life. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead establishes him as a better high priest. So it's in, it's, we're, we're resting everything in the resurrection. For its witness, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So because Jesus is a priest outside of the law of Moses, Jesus becomes the guarantor of a brand new covenant. We speak of this like it's common language. We speak of this like, oh, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, it just, it's just the way it is. It's this logic right here that allows us to see Jesus is doing something different. So we see a New Testament, a new covenant is written now in the person of Jesus. And so here we have in 22 to 28 of uh, chapter 7, we have, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Exactly what I said. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, Je but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin, then for the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints in men, or for the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of oath which came later than the law has appointed a son who has been made perfect forever. What we have is Jesus is now a high priest made perfect forever. And so this is so, so important for us because now we can 
right at the beginning. You'll notice I didn't do Hebrews 4 because now, now we understood this priesthood. Now we understand that Jesus stands and he intercedes for us. He's there. He knows. He's being tempted in every way we are. And he knows what's happening. He knows the fear that you've felt when you've approached God. He knows every element of your life. And he becomes the mediator, the person between God and man. So get this, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let any of us fear lest we should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not uh, they were not united by faith, which to those who listened. So, since we have a great high priest, let's not forget the message that we just saw in, in 4.1. But since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we've just explained that the author of Hebrews is just explaining that, that all of the old way of approaching God, it was good for a season. But now that Jesus has come, he's established a brand new way, a new covenant that says you can approach God. When you think of the presence of God, when you think of that like glory of God, the priest Jesus stands in between you and that glory. And he stands on your behalf. And the good news is he stands on your behalf. The Bible says that he is interceding for us constantly. He is your vouchsafe. He is the one who says you can approach me. You can approach this God. And here's the challenge today. He is the one who says, I'm going to prepare you to live in the glory of God. I am preparing you. I am rooting things out of you that are necessary to root out of you so that you are ready to live in the glory of God. The priesthood stood to prepare us for the glory of God. Jesus stands to prepare us for the glory of God. The priesthood offered sacrifices so that you could approach God. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice so that we could approach God. And so all of this history, all of this argumentation that happens here says Jesus is superior to what was before. And now we have three and a half chapters of the Bible devoted to a, to a ground level understanding that says, here's our logic. Here's why we can say, all the way from, from Moloch to God correcting and saying, no, 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 that's not the way it do, is done. Finally, Jesus incarnates as the high priest who says, here I am for you. And so the challenge that we have is not to take this lightly. The challenge we have is to say, Jesus, if you truly are the high priest, the one who mediates for me, the one who stands in the way, the one who prepares me, in what way are you preparing me? What elements of my life and my direction are you preparing me and my heart 
What things are you, are you, are you, are you removing? Are there elements where I look at God the way that the ancient Near Eastern culture looked at God, that, that I just have wrong perceptions of God, and God's just going, nope, get in the word, understand my actual perception, understand what I have. Are there, are there elements where we've picked up cultural things, and God, God is correcting and saying, no, it's not that, it's this. Look at the word, look at my revelation. Are there habits in your life? that you have, that God's saying, you're not ready. You're not ready yet. I'm refining you. I'm changing you. I'm challenging you. I'm making you ready to live forever in the glory and in the presence of our great God with Jesus, our high priest. Devin, if you want to come up, you can put the screen up. They can put the question on as, uh, as you come up. With all this said, why do we still ask for forgiveness? Is it necessary? Yeah. So... God does not force anything upon us. The act of asking for forgiveness is the act of our worship, approaching God, saying, God, I recognize that I'm not ready yet. Make me ready. Change me. Impact me. John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. However, when we don't opt into that, when we say, yeah, you know, all done, whatever. I don't need to worry about that. How is the high priest ever going to change us and prepare us for the presence of God? And if we are not then prepared for the presence of God, how will we stand when God reveals himself in all of his glory? And so my prayer is that we allow our hearts to be prepared for God in all of his glory. And so that's why we still ask for forgiveness. I hope that helped. Let me pray. Wow, God, there's a ton to digest there in Hebrews. Taking 20 minutes barely, barely scratches the surface. But God, I pray that this framework of understanding Jesus' high priest might give us a lens into understanding why this argument is relevant today. Because without this understanding, we are stuck with an arbitrary reason that a man 2,000 years ago could die on a cross and that somehow gets me into the presence of God. Without this reasoning here, we don't have a good understanding or a good grasp to say Jesus forgave me my sins. And so God, I pray that during this week we would, we would both reflect on you as high priest, that you would give us more understanding, but God, one level deeper, I pray for this congregation that you would be allowed to work in our hearts and in our minds to become more prepared to live in your unveiled glory. To be more prepared for that day when we start an eternal forever living in your perfect presence. God, I pray that in every way that we would be submissive to you, that we would be, that we would be obedient to you, that we would be faithful to you. And God, for those times that, we, <laughs> that, we, that we're not there, I pray that we would approach the throne of grace to find mercy and find help in our time of need. I pray that we would not be, be, be shy, but that we would know that you have walked this road before us and that you are a great high priest. And so, Jesus, I pray that, that our minds would be continually refined by your word. In Jesus' name.